0: Hello everyone, it's January twenty first, twenty twenty. This week finally we have a Dragon in Flight abort test, and it looks good. Then we're talking to Sylvia Alba about the work she does at the International Astronautical Congress as a visual facilitator. If you don't know what that is, well keep listening and lift off. (music) And we've cleared the tower, welcome to episode two forty four of the Orbital Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. I'm Ben. I'm Dennis. We're recording this just just after the in-flight abort test for the Dragon capsule, so we're gonna talk about that mm-hmm. later on. But uh, yeah. it got delayed from yesterday, but I'm kind of happy about that because, like, I don't know if about you, but I find it very pleasing, like, when something happens and then we get to talk about it right afterwards. Like, this <laughs> is just, yeah, because that just makes the show so much easier. It's almost like, oh, I don't need to take notes or you know, like, I'll remember <laughs> it just oh. happened.
1: Yeah, it's perfect. I mean, like, and literally one hour before you know we start recording. Mm-hmm. Yeah, (laughs) it's it's as convenient as you can get.
0: Yeah, they should do all these tests like Sunday morning. (laughs) I, I mean, I vote for that. I, I I think that's how they should do stuff and launches too.
1: Get on the horn and call them. Yeah.
0: yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
2: so, were you guys watching uh, Tim Dodd's stream because he set up a telescope?
0: I saw prior to the launch, but I did not watch his stream while the launch happened. But I saw like you know the setup part, and he had I guess it was I I guess that was a telescope. But it was a giant. I mean, yeah, it looked like a telescope, so I guess that's what that was. Yeah.
2: No, it was a it was a telescope on a motorized mount with like a joystick and everything, and uh, they they did a fantastic job tracking up until it went into the clouds. And basically, everything happened just above a cloud, and uh, poor Tim mm. was pulling his hair out. He's going, "No, we can't <laughs> see it." Um, but yeah, Tim, Tim really, uh, really is just putting out fantastic content these mm-hmm. days.
1: Oh yeah, watching all of his—I uh, mean, he has the links to his other videos where he touches on mm-hmm. all the different aspects of commercial mm-hmm, crew yep. and crew drag. Like that's like I had to rewatch all those before. This morning, just to, yeah, brush up on everything.
2: Okay, so yeah, I I guess we just got to talk about this, don't we? Yeah, I think (laughs) we do. All right, so we're now officially in spaceflight news. Crew Dragon had a successful in-flight abort test today. So it it reached 40 kilometers or 131,000 feet um which is so high that when they were flip after they ditched the trunk, they actually had to use uh the Dracos to to flip it around because um with the with the uh pad abort test you know it just flipped over into its stable orientation uh just be- because of the air pressure, but this was so high up that the air pressure did absolutely nothing to change the orientation of the vehicle <laughs> um and that's pretty cool that that's um That's, you know, that's space. I mean, not, not actually space, uh, but that, that's, it looks like space.
1: High enough to look like space. (laughs)
2: Yeah. Look, looks like space and feels like space for, uh,
0: many many purposes just so we have an idea of what the inside of the capsule looked like there were two what were called anthropomorphic test devices which are just like you know (laughs) test dummies i mean it well and i couldn't see the body i just saw like feet first because that was kind of like the camera angle but it looked like people sitting there but they weren't moving because they weren't real people but Mm -hmm. um yeah there was all kinds of instrumentation within those so oh the seats were instrumented yeah i mean that's what he said okay Uh, yeah
2: but it's it's interesting they they weren't they weren't full uh like the dummy that they sent up to ISS. It wasn't like it actually had instrumentation inside of it and you know all that stuff it was just the seats were instrumented
0: so i guess there was just that they were just there to look at and provide obviously a little bit of you know the correct distribution of weight Mm -hmm. uh or at least for that section of the spacecraft because there should have been what three seats at that level and then four more below it but they didn't have any of those they just had mass simulators which looked like you know like rucksacks that were all strapped down Mm -hmm. i guess it was just bricks in them or whatever i'm not (laughs) sure what they put in them but they were strapped to the quote-unquote floor
2: well and what's interesting is uh you you said they're strapped to the floor, which is you know what it looks like, but they they actually removed the floor and yeah, they also removed the life support, and so that's what a lot of that mass was mm-hmm. uh, was replicating. But then yeah, I think the dummies were just there to give the seat something to push against, right? Because if you instrument mm-hmm. the seats, you you still need something in the seat to, right, to
1: get good data. Yeah, that's that's what they got to measure <laughs> yep. touching
2: this is going to be kind of tough because uh this was such a visual event so there are going to be a bunch of photos in the show notes uh, i'm sure that everybody listening to this has already seen them uh, but it was a real delight to watch these photos trickle in over the half hour after the mm. after the launch and i'm sure that we'll get some better photos uh, as time goes on but just from right now where we are Um, we've really seen some fantastic photos. So I I guess the right way to talk about this is to just go through it chronologically, right? Um, Mm. It was uh, a beautiful uh, liftoff. They got up to Max-Q and they did their normal throttle down during Max-Q and then they passed through it and then they throttled back up. For some reason, I thought that they were actually doing the abort at max q but that wasn't the case. I read That's that what
1: I thought for too for sure. Some some yeah. places were definitely saying that, but
2: yeah. I wonder if if they throttle for a different definition of max q. Like maybe max q for the throttle up and down is for the rocket as a whole and then the abort test happened at what would be max q for dragon which has a different ballistic coefficient.
0: Since we weren't taking anything to orbit, was the first stage completely fueled? I mean like was this fueled up to simulate, you know like an actual launch? Which I guess That's, gets into some of the questions that we have, or was it just enough to get it to that altitude yeah. and then it could just ditch? I,
2: I believe so, because this was pretty close to where we would be doing second stage separation anyway. I mean, it, it was reasonably close. So I, I bet you they fueled it all the way up, but I don't know that for sure.
1: I, I had seen, not from an official source saying that it was fueled up all the way, but I had seen other people basically... Mm-hmm talking about it being fully fueled hence why the boom was quite so big
2: yeah so then then the boom so there there was the uh right before they separated dragon they actually um shut down the falcon nine or the uh the merlin engines on the first stage and then they uh separated and uh dragon you know lights up at super dracos and goes zipping off into the distance which is great and fantastic, but the really cool thing was watching to see what was going to happen to the to the booster, the the first stage and the second stage, because um, before the launch, um, SpaceX has said that their simulations indicated that it was going to begin to tumble, and then it was likely going to break up during that tumble, and that they wouldn't even have a chance to fire the abort abort flight. Termination, flight
0: termination. Uh,
2: flight ter- there you go. <laughs> they weren't going to be able to to um, to fire up the FTS, the flight termination system, and uh, that that's basically where you have a line of detonation cord running down the side of the first stage, and I believe it's just one uh, one line down one side, but they might do two, one hundred and eighty degrees apart. But I believe it's just one, and that that explodes and and tears the first stage open like a zipper, and then. You know, all the propellants mix and explode in that explosion. And it's a very effective and uh, and simple way of of making sure that no big chunks land on anybody. Even, you know, even though it's flying out to, out to ocean, you want to be able to do as much destruction high up as you can. But they were saying that they weren't expecting the FTS to come into play because the thing would just tumble and break apart. But what we saw was not a lot of tumbling. It actually um, wound up pointing in the right direction for most of it. And then there was an explosion. Um, it looked like it might have rotated a little bit, but it certainly wasn't getting into a full-on end-over-end tumble or anything. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, there was a boom. And there was a lot of fire. And there was some amount of of white clouds, which I believe are just clouds formed by the the cold propellants not... Combusting and then you know uh, condensing uh, water out of the air, it was interesting. I was in the uh, the off nominal discord um, during the during the live stream, and somebody mentioned that it looked a lot like the CRS7 explosion but i disagreed actually i think the CRS explosion looked very white there was a lot of white cloud and this we saw a lot of black cloud and orange explosion what what was your guys' impression
0: i mean that's what i think cuz i remember watching that CRS7 explosion and it seemed like that one it almost seemed to have like vaporized like there was little to nothing left over it kind of just vanished in a white puff and then it just seemed to have disintegrated <laughs> when i was
2: watching it live i actually thought that it had gone behind a cloud
0: yeah i suppose like oh, that, wow. yeah that's you know like one explanation because i just didn't see much of anything i was like wow it's, it's it's just gone but yeah this was a very it what looked like an explosion with a lot of you know fuel contributing to that so that's mm-hmm. kind of why i was wondering if this was fully fueled and how much was left over within the tanks which obviously i suppose if this stage was being prepped so as to bring that first stage back let's say or whatever i mean there's going to be some amount left over but um it just seemed it just seemed like a very big boom i don't know i don't know i mean it could be the flight termination software but it just it really exploded quite well i guess is what i'm trying to say it was a good yeah. explosion
2: so if it if it was uh afts the automatic flight termination system which is the the onboard ability to activate the fts if it was AFTS, then uh, it didn't do a very good job because it didn't destroy the second stage. <laughs> um, we can talk about that in a sec. But I, I'm re-watching the video and it definitely looks like it was beginning to yaw sideways. Um just looking at the amount of smoke that kind of builds up on well smoke, you know, the amount of uh smoke that builds up on the side kind of showing it. Um, having some turbulence along the side instead of just behind it,
0: yeah, well, yeah, because I was going to ask how you like how can anyone tell if it had turned sideways or not because it 's so small i, I mean i don 't know if you have a better visual, but i can 't okay. see anything
2: it, it's well so i 'm looking at the live stream and and you can definitely see it actually, I think it might have gotten up to forty or fifty degrees actually now that i 'm looking at it. Um, because i think what happened was it was beginning to turn towards the camera and so what you see is a foreshortening of the fr- of the stage um rather than a rotation of the stage where it actually looks like it's you know turning sideways on your hmm. screen so yeah i bet you what happened was it began to tumble yeah yeah if you if you look at the uh if you look at the the contrail behind it um that really i think tells a, a lot of story um as you watch it go from Right after it shut down, it's a very narrow stream. And then it begins to widen up as there's more turbulence behind the craft. So, yeah, I, I, now, now that I'm looking at it, I do think it began to tumble. But when it tumbled, hmm. my imagination is that it began to bend. Um, and the the weakest part, as far as uh, a bending moment goes, I believe is the inner stage. And I think particularly it's either the top or the bottom of the inner stage where it connects to the second stage or connects to the top of the, uh, of the boosters tanks. And I bet you what happened was that inner stage uh, put a lot of force on the top uh, of the booster uh, uh, locks tank up the top. And I bet you it ripped open that locks tank. And that was what precipitated the first stage exploding. Mm. But then one thing that we haven't mentioned is that the second stage came down relatively intact uh, and slammed into the ocean. Now I had heard people referencing this as a dummy second stage. But when it hit the ocean, it definitely had a fireball. And there'll be photos of that in the show notes. So I think that this might have been a fueled first stage that actually exploded. Mm -hmm. Which seems really weird.
0: (laughs) It looks like, and again, uh, like you said, Ben, what is that behind it? Is that like a contrail just caused by turbulent, or is that exhaust? But it looks like it looks like it's hot.
2: It looks like it's coming out of the side to me. It looks like there are two different smoke emitters. One is, one is coming off the side, which would probably be the locks. Well, it's on the bottom, but it looks like one of the vents, one of the propellant vents. Um, you know, where the, when they're fueling up locks, there's, there's venting going on to bleed Mm. off the, the, the gaseous oxygen. So I think, um, I think the one coming out of the side is gaseous oxygen coming out of the vent. And then there's also smoke coming out of the interstage. And, uh, I, I don't know, maybe. There there's no way that they would have actually put an engine in there is there? Like I don't I don't know. I I uh-huh. uh, I I don't think I don't think that it's something burning necessarily. It might be maybe maybe because they didn't have yeah, I don't know. Maybe there's something in there that can combust that was ignited during the first stage explosion, but I, I'm not sure.
1: Well, when it splashed down, I mean, that was a huge Explosion.
0: Well, that's an explosion for sure when it, yeah. when, it hits, when it hits the ocean. So there, it has to have had fuel in it, right? What else could cause that? It's a fireball, not just an explosion either.
2: Right, exactly. I don't know. It definitely looks like, like propellant getting consumed. I, I would expect them to put a dummy second stage on this vehicle. But if you're going to install an actual upper stage, you might as well fill it up. I mean, be as realistic as possible. That way you don't have to worry about the missing mass.
0: Right. And it like also not just because you want to simulate all the dangers of a real flight and that would be one of them because, you know, the whole point is to make sure that the escape system works. So, or the abort system.
2: So I think it's really interesting that the second stage made it all the way back down to the water because um, SpaceX said nothing about the fire from the super dracos causing damage to the vehicle all that they were saying was we expect it to tumble and then break up and it was really interesting Mm -hmm. uh, to see people talk on twitter and reddit before before and after the launch and saying oh well you know I'm not surprised that it exploded because of, you know, the Super Dracos that were in close proximity. But it, it, it this really confirms that that's not the problem. You know, not having this wind impinge on the top of the second stage isn't a problem. The problem is is tumbling.
1: Yep. I mean, right. It's It, it just throttled up or I guess, I mean, it cut off its engine at that point. But I mean, it's going very fast <laughs> and it's not meant to uh, get uh, stresses coming from uh, the sides like that.
0: And so the reason why they turn off the engines on the first stage that was just to simulate let's say the explosion of the first stage because at that point there's no more thrust right because otherwise why mm. do that but i mean you wouldn't do it aboard like with a functioning first stage or at least i would assume or you, yeah I, I'm I, not, I suppose you might i'm but.
2: not sure i mean you'd think that there were going to be potential cases where um, you'd have to do an abort while some or all of the first stage engines were still running, but I guess that mm-hmm. they considered that to be a low enough probability that they were happy shutting down those engines.
0: Yeah, because I was just wondering what would be the escape speed if those engines were still firing. Um, mm-hmm. In fact, how fast does this thing accelerate? Does anyone know? I mean, it pulls I know four Gs. Four. That's it. Yeah. Really, just four. That that seems fairly benign considering what launch escape towers some of the are other capable ones of do. generating. Yeah. yeah. Like back in the day, I think it's, I want to say it was like 20-something. I mean, for very brief, for just a short couple seconds maybe.
1: Yeah, I'm seeing more, four times the force of Earth's gravity.
0: Because, I mean, that's about what a nominal ride to orbit would be. Probably like three Gs, but still. I suppose if, you know, the first stage blows up, right, there's no more thrust happening. And at that point, you kick on those motors, you pull four Gs, and so you're escaping at a fairly decent speed so that you can avoid any possible debris.
2: Okay, zero to one hundred miles an hour in one point two
0: seconds. I guess that's about right.
1: Well, as I say, the G's ten meters per second. So I don't know how many miles per hour that is though. <laughs> I'm gonna say about twenty five miles per hour is my guess. Yep, twenty two point four miles per hour. So so it checks.
2: <laughs> yeah. So so Soyuz aborts at around fourteen to seventeen G's. But yeah, hundred miles an hour in one point two seconds is accelerating at three. Three point eight
1: G's. Okay. Do you think maybe that's because it's uh because they're using uh, liquid engines instead of uh, solid rocket motors for the escape system? Oh, that's a good question. Actually. Maybe that. Yeah. Let, you know,
0: probably yeah. Because I don't think I don't think you could generate that much thrust, or at least not realistically with like anything but solids. So mm-hmm. that's probably it. But but I suppose that they feel that you don't need to escape any faster than that. <laughs> um, <laughs> so three point seven G's or whatever, good enough. Yeah.
2: Man, so the. The Super Draco might not be a solid, but it goes from ignition to full thrust in a hundred milliseconds.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: <laughs> like that is the kind of acceleration that you see in a car crash. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah. One of the hosts of the SpaceX webcast said that, like, if you strapped to like one of those things mm-hmm. to your back, you would go from mm-hmm. what zero to the speed of sound in half a second or something like that. I, th- yeah. I, I think it was, yeah. So. <laughs> But I mean, that's but that's like strapped onto a person, not a whole spacecraft. Right. So obviously, right. you know, you don't want to accelerate that. I don't know how many what the g loads would be like on that, but
1: it just makes me think of a Darwin Award right there. <laughs> right. <laughs>
0: so uh, second stage
2: impacts the water. First stage or uh, uh, the Crew Dragon also impacts the water, but at a much slower pace mm-hmm. <laughs> with uh, yeah. successful parachute
1: deployment and everything. And what an awesome sh- like shot of the parachutes deploying, right? Like, I feel like, I don't know, for like my friends who aren't space people, I feel Mm -hmm. like that's going to be something I would really want to emphasize. Like you got to check out like watching these parachutes deploy from the spacecraft. Four big jellyfish just kind of looping around yep. up there. It's like...
0: Yeah, it looks cool. That's what a solid rocket booster on the space shuttle looks like. It's very cool to watch. Mm. Um, and listen to if you listen to the ones with the audio, which is like mm-hmm. the funnest part. Yeah. Yeah.
2: I love the pinging and... Yeah.
0: Oh, yeah.
1: Did you notice that two of the shoots had different patterns than the others? I wonder if that had to do yep. with during their redesign that maybe...
2: They... No, they usually, um, you'll have all of your shoots will have their own design so that you can identify which one is which. In, oh, uh, that's in... Photos.
1: such so, a simple, uh, clever thing. Yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah, I need to look at it again, but I believe all four of them have unique designs.
1: Ah, see, well, I, I could believe that, but there's certainly a similarity between pairs of them, though. Yeah. But there might be subtler differences.
0: I don't remember. I don't recall the term, but those shoots come out and they don't immediately unfurl because uh, that's meant to reduce the stresses on the capsule as it comes down. It
1: reefed or something? Oh, yeah.
0: yeah. 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 Reefing, I think is what they call and that, it. Right? And
2: that's very common. That's uh, almost all parachutes do that.
0: Right, yeah. I mean, they should at least because that's one of the things that, like, I've never been skydiving, but I've always thought if I do, I mean, actually, in that case, I don't know how quickly they unfurl, but it's that sounds like quite a jolt. Like, that sounds, to me, to be the worst part of having a parachute open up on you. It's mm. just that sudden <laughs> kick. You get yanked back. Yeah,
2: well, unfortunately, uh, skydiving parachutes don't. Uh, as yeah. far as I know, there aren't any that, that actually deploy in a reef configuration. <laughs> oh, well, yeah, that, that would be nice. Maybe you could make a luxury parachute there. That- <laughs> That, uh, that does reef, <laughs> you know. You'd have to open it earlier, but that's okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. True, yeah. And so these are indeed uh, SpaceX's uh, newest parachutes, mm. uh, which is really nice.
1: The Mark threes.
2: These are the ones that they had to test over and over and over again. They did mm-hmm. ten tests in a in a couple of months.
0: There was an article, I guess, on. I don't remember, Spaceflight Now or wherever, that said that according to a NASA official, if this test was successful, which I think it was, then they could start crew launches as soon as March. But then during the press conference, uh, what Elon Musk had said was that probably in the second quarter. Now, is that March or, I mean, I don't think so because that would be I think be April, March is right, right
2: between this right January, February, right. March. Oh, yeah. So that's at the end of the first quarter. Sure.
0: But in either case, at some time during the first half of the year, for sure, and probably sooner than that mm-hmm. even. That actually bodes quite well. I don't remember now because of the recent problem with the Starliner where they're, I mean, how, how far they've been set back. But it looks like that this time we can safely say that SpaceX is actually leading the race now. Like, they we probably will make it to orbit first
2: yeah yep yeah, that's what it looks like no no guarantees obviously don't don't email us <laughs> but <laughs> but yeah I think that's the a safe bet now.
1: Honestly, I think the biggest sigh of relief for this test going well was when I guess they were what forty minutes before or something like that, or whenever they uh fueled the Draco's and they didn't explode. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, there we go. <laughs> Woof. I mean, considering all the yeah the mishaps have had, you're kind of not wrong. I mean, <laughs> I mean, like because you just never know. Because with SpaceX, things go wrong that you don't expect, or at least that we don't expect. But with other well, I guess it's never expected, but you know, you know what I mean. It's always something novel. Like, I'd, like I've, learned, I've learned more about how rockets are put together just from SpaceX mishaps than anything else. Like, I really have. Like, there's things that I would have never <laughs> thought of, but then something goes wrong, the thing explodes on its way to orbit. And it's like, mm-hmm. oh, okay, so that's how you hold that in place with a strut. Like, you know, <laughs> like you just don't think about things like that. Or at least I don't normally, but then I learn a lot about them because of these types mm-hmm. of occurrences. Let's hope they don't happen again. Good
1: job. Good job, SpaceX. You know, congratulations. Mm-hmm.
0: Okay, let's do just two short and sweets. That kind of rhymed. All right, what's the first one, Dennis? <laughs>
1: well, first up Dream Chaser is on track for a 2021 mission. Sierra Nevada Corporation's Dream Chaser space plane is on schedule for its first mission, flying on a ULA Vulcan Centaur rocket and carrying cargo to the International Space Station in 2021. SNC officials gave updates on the spacecraft, confidently stating that a crewed mission will, quote, absolutely, end quote, Mm -hmm. take place within five years, and also Mm -hmm. revealing that the company is part of a team led by Dynetics that has submitted a proposal for a human landing system as part of the Artemis project.
2: And next, uh, the second all-woman spacewalk was a success. Jessica Meir and Christina Koch uh, completed a seven-and-a-half-hour EVA last Wednesday, continuing work on the large-scale project of replacing all of the 48 of the ISS's nickel-hydrogen batteries with lithium-ion ones. The astronauts removed three of the older degraded batteries and installed two new ones, supplying power to the port-side outboard solar array. The only off-nominal incident was an issue with Koch's helmet lights, which dangled from their power cable and would not attach to her helmet, uh, but this did not significantly impair the spacewalk as the two just shared lighting from Mir's helmet when necessary. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, <laughs> I don't know if that's ever happened during a spacewalk, huh? Or lack of light from your helmet light not working. I've never heard of it,
2: but that doesn't mean very
1: much. And it, and it was so—it sounds so goofy, like reading it. It's like you know, oh, it's not attached, and then Jessica kind of comes over and tries to attach it. Uh, I ain't going in. All right. <laughs> yeah. take, take the whole damn thing off. Okay. <laughs> yeah.
0: Well, they were very pleased to hear that they could keep going because, you know, they, they wanted to press on, but they thought that maybe they would call it off just because of that.
2: All right. Welcome to interview segment. On the line, we have Sylvia Alba. She is... Uh, She's calling herself a visual facilitator, which I think is a great term. Um, but uh, in more common parlance, I guess she's she's an artist um, who has a really interesting art job. So let me real quick, uh, before I, before I ask you to explain what you do, um, let me explain where where we met her. Um, while we were at IAC a couple of months ago, during some of the panels, um, the the slideshow up on the screen, would uh, get taken over by somebody drawing uh portraits and quotes of the folks on stage, and at first, I thought it was it, it was a joke or it was you know some sort of pre recorded segment that was um, teasing a later event but it, it turns out it was Sylvia. So Sylvia, um, why don't you tell us what you do and how you got into it?
3: Yeah, so hello, uh, thanks for inviting me over. So I guess um, let me start with visual facilitation and I, now I've realized that I haven't chosen the
0: easiest <laughs> title to explain my job. <laughs> 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 so I've got to shot myself in the foot there. It kind of reminds me of a pair of glasses actually now that I think about it. Isn't that what a visual Facilitator would be yeah <laughs> yeah 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 true actually
3: yeah maybe, maybe that that's my next title <laughs> I'm a fairer Uh but basically I um, I make people um, connect with information through imagery okay so and I kind of do it in a number of different ways and and the way that Ben was just talking about is by basically visually recording like listening to what is going on in a room. And trying to translate that into images, um, and I kind of do that live, and I can do it uh, sort of digitally, or I can do it analog. Um, and the whole idea is that at the end of a meeting or a presentation, um, you would have this picture that is basically a summary of what's been said, um, and people can then look at it and and they can connect with the information, and it can remind them of stuff that that was said. But also um, it can be used for people that weren't in the room as well. So to, to kind of get an idea of what, of what happened um, in the room. The idea is that it kind of, you know, images would trigger other images. And I kind of don't aim to record everything that's going on because that's virtually impossible. But with the little hints that I that I give you, uh, you're kind of able to to create an experience of, of what's happened and complement your experience with with my work. Is that does that make yeah. sense? <laughs>
2: yeah and, and so uh, that's that's sort of the intention behind your work, but the the physical manifestation is you stand at the front of uh, conferences mostly, right? Like all sorts of conferences with a giant uh, a giant uh, piece of uh, well, I guess it's like foam core or something, but a, a giant easel. And you draw and write and sketch to to build this record,
3: yeah, yeah, that's right, so um, so the idea of of doing it live is that people can see it happening um and they can sort of i mean there's obviously whilst I'm recording, I kind of i listen to to different points, and I try to listen to the main information um I try to capture um as it's happening um and at the same time people can can have a different input into into what they're hearing and and you know I as as I said I kind of um it's very I try to be very neutral into what I'm capturing and I try to if it's a great presenter then it means it makes my job really really easy um and if it's somebody that can't really get the point across then that's obviously that's also going to manifest itself into whatever I'm creating <laughs> you know anyway if if, and and another tip trick that i use is if people are kind of like repeating uh different words uh, and repeating different points that they want to make then then i you know i put emphasis into whatever whatever they're, they're saying but it can also be um i can i also do it on the ipad and it kind of depends what experience you want to give participants because the advantage with doing it digitally is so that you can then have it on a screen and zoom in into really what I'm, what I'm writing and what I'm, what I'm capturing. And then if you have it sort of like on the big phone board at the front of the room, it's, it's a bit more of a kind of like a performance and people know that it's happening and then they can uh, sort of come up to it afterwards and and see, and see it captured and see, and see what's been going on.
2: Um, could you sort of do, so, so in the show notes, we'll have, um, you, you sent, four wonderful photos, two are of two of works that you've uh, finished, and then two are of you actually drawing at the front of the room, which is really cool. Mm -hmm. Um, And and I I think these are all from IAC, right?
0: Yeah, that you sent me.
2: So for listeners who don't have a moment to jump into the show notes and look at these photos, could you describe sort of the compositional style that you use and And then I guess maybe talk about how how you came to develop this style and uh, how you how you plan things out to actually make this work.
3: Yeah. So basically, if you kind of look at the analog boards, um, I mean, first of all, this is not really something that I came up with. (laughs) I'm not going to trademark the sort of graphic recording and the and the and the idea of sort of capturing information live is something that has been it's been people have done it since the 60s, I think. Uh, and actually, I mean, if you really go back in time, it's it's basically from scribes that were that were capturing. Um, actually, people that were doing drawings in cave and caves and stuff to sort of capture what was going on around them, and it's it's sort of a, a way a way to communicate it. And then I think in the sixties or seventies, it started becoming uh, more of a of a way to do it very practically. So to kind of like transfer complex information into into images that people could understand. And I i, I mean, the way that I, I I'm kind of jumping, jumping a little bit with the question because I, I kind of want to talk <laughs> about how I got into it, because actually I started design and I kind of have a background in illustration, uh, but I never throughout university, I never really came across this until I started working. Uh, as a graphic designer and then i was at an event and i saw somebody doing this and i was like what is this <laughs> oh my god this is how, how come i've never came you know i never came across this this is so cool um and i started um basically i spoke with my bosses and i started kind of training to training on the job to be able to uh to be able to do it so i've been doing it for about eight years now um and it's you know i mean the way that you start is you sort of um basically try to listen to lots of different talks and try to capture them uh, in whatever way that you can and it's and i kind of see it as a as sort of bis- building up your visual library so once you draw something once you hear something and draw it then that is something that you can draw uh, and then next time you're going to be able to draw it uh, quicker and that's and, and you know you build your sort of language um that you can then use very quickly so and that's how you build up steep speed speed because it's something you know as I said, it's done live so so you need to you need to, you need to be able to do it very quickly. And in terms of then how I plan um, these pictures, I mean there are different factors. So one of them is um, it depending depends on how long um, the talk is going to be. So if I know it's going to be a, a 10 minutes speech, it's going to be very different if I know it's going to be a 45 minute speech. Uh, because i need to leave space and i need to sort of plan plan my plan my board um and also the size of of you know if if it's a 10 minute talk then i'm gonna write very big because i want to fill out my board if it's a if it's a 45 hour speech and i'm gonna write really small uh, and then I've kind of like you know as over the years I've sort of developed different ways of um, maybe planning my board but I don't really do much beforehand I just do the I sort of write the title or maybe do a portrait of the of the speaker uh, and I try to sort of keep to my internal rules of like okay you know if I'm I know I'm halfway through it's like okay I should be about halfway of the board there but mm-hmm. it's never you know it's never really exact I mean there's been times plenty of time, so I kind of like run out of space or suddenly the talk finishes and I half of the board is empty and it's like okay let me just draw a big <laughs> I don't know a rocket here and, <laughs> um, but yeah I mean it's, it's it's all it's all practice and I think um, having done this has been my third year now at the ISC and I think in every ISC I do about 30 boards <laughs> so mm. i've had now uh plenty of practice so yeah i mean it's, it's a never it's a never-ending learning process as
0: well so i'm um, just out of ask you what happens to these boards after you're done with them
3: so normally we sort of offer them to the to the speakers um and if they want them a lot of the times they sort of um, they take them and they put them up in their offices um And a lot of them end up in the i a f s office in paris, <laughs> so I haven't mm. been yet, but if you go there uh yeah they they have a gallery all over the all over the walls, and this is kind of why we've decided to go a little bit more digital this year because traditionally it's been very analog um very with the with phone boards um but actually this year half of them were done digitally because um, it means we can store them easier and we can share them uh easier but anyway the i mean the experience of having somebody draw a physical board life is is something that you can't really change with the digital experience so mm-hmm. we try to do a bit of everything
2: so so these compositions are just very I, I know that you said that sometimes you wind up with you know very large text or you know filling up Spaces, but they they seem really dense to me. Like they're they're almost sort of the visual density of like um, like a Renaissance painting where there's mm-hmm. just a huge crowd and everybody's doing something different, you know. And so you have text and images um, and a lot of speech bubbles. Do each of these elements feel like their own little world on their little part of the board? Like as you're drawing them?
3: Yeah, I mean. So the aim, I basically, well, obviously I follow sort of like a chronological order (laughs) with whatever's being said, but I do try to make connections uh, between um, information. So at the beginning, it's going to be very like, this is what they said, and I'm going to do a little drawing of this and and a little speech bubble. But as the sort of talk progresses, then, you know, those areas are going to become more dense and maybe are are going to become more, more... more separate i guess and more tell tell a little bit more of a story so i mean this kind of way of working represents the way the the mind works maybe <laughs> if mm-hmm. you think of it that way and there's multiple thought processes happening uh and actually a lot of the people and 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 this is not meant to work for everyone you know so this is kind of um there are a lot of people actually who who kind of respond better to the input of the presenter than to whatever I'm creating so as i said this is kind of uh, a complement into into what is happening so but the but the the sort of advantage of doing that is that also uh, people can see the flow of information as it's happening as it's uh, and as it's being built and i kind of um you know try to plan as much as i can but also i don't really like um there's a lot of speakers that always or a lot of people that hire me that are kind of like oh well i'm gonna uh, i'm gonna send you all the slides and this is exactly what they're gonna say and i'm Mm. gonna send you the script so read it and you know make sure that you know the information Mm. and i'm like okay, well, if you want me to read in and know the information, then what's the point of me being there? (laughs) If I know everything Mm. beforehand, (laughs) you know, there's no reason for me to be live because uh, what I'm doing there is capturing the essence of what is going on in the room. So I really try to not uh, know anything about what's about to happen. You know, the less I know, the better. Because um, if I know too much, then... There's going to be some kind of interference uh, from what I know into the into the work, and my job is to really listen and and translate live. Um, you know what I what I understand, and obviously there's a lot of terminology that I'm not familiar with, especially in the space industry. Um, but this is actually a very helpful thing. Um, sometimes you know, naivety is a bliss kind of thing because if <laughs> if it's terminology that that I don't understand, chances are that the public are not really under- going to understand, you know, you average person that actually doesn't, you know, mm-hmm. watches um, uh, SpaceX once a year <laughs> is not really going to know what's going on. So, and this is sort of my job. It's kind of like, how do I bridge the public and people who, don't have this connection with the space industry day-to-day um, and the space industry.
2: That, that's actually interesting because I was going to ask if you'd ever started a quote and then realized you didn't know how to spell a word, oh. but I guess, <laughs> y, you know, you kind of you uh-huh. kind of build that in where if you don't know how to spell the word, you're unlikely to write a sentence that includes it if it's un- an unfamiliar word.
3: Absolutely. Yeah, no. And I actually, I mean, I did, but this happens often where, where I kind of, uh, I start an idea because, you know, because it's going so quickly and people, People are like they're speaking so fast, and actually, if it's um, you know, if it's somebody that that can is trying to sort of make a point, and then they they speak too quickly, um, I get the idea, but then they start on the next mm-hmm. idea that is super complicated. Mm-hmm. So by the time I'm finishing one idea, I forget what the point of the idea is, you know, um, <laughs> so then I have to turn it into something else, and then it's, it's not really. Uh, fair on the presenter but um but these are these are things that um I mean you know I I don't aim for it to be perfect at all in any way um it's it's sort of like uh, my take on it and it's kind of like um yeah if you if you if you think of it I I actually like the analogy of a pair of glasses that was made earlier because you you kind of put on this this lens that that will give you a different perspective whether it is right or wrong and you know I try to be as accurate as possible but also um as you say as well if it's something that I don't understand I'm definitely not going to you know if it's something that I don't understand from the beginning I'm definitely not going to Go into it and the point is going to be lost but then again it's not really lost because you you have the recording of the presenter and you have the slides and you have all these other different inputs that um, that are giving you that really complex deep information so it's kind of like different different layers of information and i guess i'm kind of like on the surface Um, if
0: you like, is there any particular example that you could refer to where you were really like, you know, like where you really felt lost and you weren't sure what was going on and like, maybe, Oh no, I have already messed this up. Because I assume that you can't just erase what you drew, although maybe you can.
3: Uh, I have my tricks. I have my tricks. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so I have built up some tools where I can actually erase. Um, but uh, no, I try. I try to sort of leave leave the mistakes. If you know, because it's part of the process. But actually, yeah. I can think of um, my first ever time that I worked with the IAF, uh, which is the sort of the company that that invited me to work with them um, on these events. Um, it was in Beijing. And it was a, it was the GLEX. It was a global space exploration conference. And the speakers, um, there, were, there was live translations. So they were kind of like speaking in Mandarin or Chinese. And then it was being translated into English. So I had to listen to the translation translation. And this has happened a couple of times, actually. And that's where I really felt like, oh, my God, <laughs> uh, where the okay. sort of the audio has cut off. For whatever reason, and um because there was i think there has been interference in the stage or um and this happened a couple of times the first time um and it was really like okay i couldn't I couldn't listen anymore, and suddenly everything was was very foreign to me, but then the advantage that I've always had is that there are other inputs around the room that help me. So you have the slides. In the the in Beijing, the time there we had um, we had the slides and they were all in English. I mean, it was lots of text, but I kind of managed to grab grab some stuff and and you you know kind of like make something of the scribe. And there was another time that it cut off and it was in French, but I still you know mm-hmm. I had live translation into English, but I had luckily I have enough French to. Uh, to sort of grasp what was being said Mm -hmm. and, and to get one sentence or two. But it hasn't, I mean, it hasn't happened often, but it's, it's normally when it's, um, yeah, when they, when there's a technical difficulty and I just, I just stop and, you know, I can't really go like, oh, by the way, my thing doesn't work, you know, can somebody help me? Because I'm on stage with the speaker, so I just have to pretend that Mm -hmm. everything's fine and I'm just, you know, do another little portrait of this person.
1: And it is all fine, but um, bit yeah. So how how did your relationship with the IAF begin? Like, how did that start? Yeah,
3: so um, it was a funny one because I um basically the the sort of visual facilitator world is very small, <laughs> still. So so I'm very lucky in that sense, and we all know each other. We're a very very small network, and it's growing, and it's great that it's growing. Um. Mm. But at the moment, it's still a bit of a niche. So if you go to a place, I had met this girl. I went to a writer's residency in France maybe three years ago. Uh, so it was a completely different context. I mean, and I I met, mm-hmm. I, I met this girl that was a, also a graphic facilitator. And the thing with this kind of work is if you meet somebody that does what you do and it's rare, then you're definitely going to exchange contacts and be, you know, and sort of <laughs> like <laughs> sure. it's like finding a little <laughs> diamond, that you know um so we immediately connect um with them and that's that's what's really nice about this job as well so with her i think it was a year later i mean i i didn't i hadn't really spoken to her and then i got a call from um from the IAF's sort of marketing manager sylvia um and she was like oh i got your contact from from miladia this this other girl um uh we we have a job in in china and we want you to graphic facilitate she she couldn't she unfortunately can't make it so she gave us your email Um so here you know we're contacting you um so that's that was it basically it was kind of like a somebody gave my name to someone and then and then that's how it started and that's how it happens a lot of the time you know and this is when I get a job that I can't do I always try and give three people's names and be like I can't make it but here's somebody that you know that I can trust because it's still as I said it's still quite new so people are very it's still very word of mouth you know so they for them to hire you or for them to be able to trust you they need to know somebody that has seen what you've done because it's it's quite hard to explain you know, it's quite hard to sell mm. in that sense. So, but it's becoming, I mean, it's, yeah, it's becoming a lot bigger and a lot more, uh, well-known, uh, which is really cool to
2: see. So Sophie in the chat has uh, a good question. I think she phr- I, I think this was a question that I had, but that I couldn't figure out how to phrase properly. So she asked, um, how do you organize the composition of the board? I see on this ISS image. So this is the one with, uh, um, with you kneeling down and drawing and uh, the panel in the background. Um, she says with this image, you've drawn the top and bottom elements first, and then you're kind of filling in the, the middle there. So do you have a, a particular pattern or strategy that you use or does it, and and I know that I've seen a lot of different, um a lot of different layouts. Do you do you have a couple of different templates in your head that you switch through or or how does that work?
3: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So the um actually as I said the I always draw the title uh and I always draw mm. the faces. So the people that are they're that about to speak mm-hmm. or if it's not the faces it will be a space for them or sort of like a frame. Uh because actually the blank board is really (laughs) nerve-wracking and having to you know Mm -hmm. for anybody to have to start drawing on something that is completely blank so I do give myself a bit of leverage by by kind of organizing my board Um, and again it depends oh yeah I think I think when I was at I see I think I
2: saw one or two of your boards you might have shown them to me that had titles and portrait circles pre-drawn yeah so that's that's something you do before the talk, okay?
3: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I can send you some. I mean, I can send you somewhere. I completely sort of before I stand at the front, what what they look like, but they they will always have the title um, and and space for the for the portraits, and then that really gives me my frame because if it's two people that are speaking um, against twelve people then that's going to be a very different board. And I mm-hmm. do need to give them, especially at the IAC, they seem to have, I mean, not so much this year, I think they've gone down, but I think before, after 12, 13 panelists, uh, which is really <laughs> quite a lot for for one board. And then that sort of gives me the idea of like, okay, I can give this much space for for one person. So everybody, you know, gets gets enough um, space. Uh, so I'm able to write uh, to capture their thoughts. Um, but then, if it's actually the the most fun ones are the ones where I just sort of like the highlight lect- lectures when it's only one speaker, because there I'm just free. You know, there's really no. I think yeah. I mean, I maybe in my in my head there are some patterns that I follow for doing this for for so long. But actually, I don't really. If it's um if it's only one person, I don't really plan it. I just let it sort of flow. Uh, but if it's a panel, then it has to be very, very organized so I don't
1: run out of space, which which happens a lot. I was going to try to get, uh, while you're talking about, like, you know, this is a job, to try and get a scale that how many boards, like, I know there's different conferences, <laughs> there they're different time uh, lengths, but I mean, how would you estimate how many boards you illustrate a day? At a typical conference, you go to.
3: So I um I mean, it's very it's very predetermined uh, that part of the of the job um, mm. because I really sit down with the you know at the beginning of each conference I sit down with the with the organizers and we look at the schedule and we say okay what are we going to describe and it, we work out the what and the how I work it out by myself um, because they don't really <laughs> need to. <laughs> You know, that unless mm-hmm. I mean, I've had some clients who are very particular about the colors and the things that they want, but I they're the less fun ones. <laughs> so uh, for me, is, uh, you know, I kind of ask, OK, what is what is important for people to know what's important for people to uh, to be able to refer back to? Um, and then yeah. I, I kind of sit down and it's like, okay, okay. Maybe I have five scribes today. Okay. I'm going to do this one in this board and this one, and I really plan the materials mm. and the, and I always try and have extra material, you know, a couple your five or port te- ports extra or, but normally, um, you have a board per session, so that's easy to work out because it's never going to be, okay. uh, more than what we agreed. You know, it's a very sort of, um, predetermined schedule. Because mm-hmm. um, it's actually in the ISCs, is the most complicated um, job I do because there are so many sessions and it's all going on simultaneously. Mm-hmm. And I remember last year in Bremen, that venue was so big <laughs> that, you know, I don't know if you were there, but it took like 10 minutes to walk from like one room to the other um and we had like little scooters (laughs) and I remember just like going around with my (laughs) ports and my little bag and and we we didn't plan for the space so actually you know sometimes when I had like 15 minutes in between a scribe I just wasn't able to make it because you know I finish a scribe and and I kind of finish and maybe I'm 10 minutes there you know touching it up Mm -hmm. and then I have to take it back to the central space and I have to get to the space so Actually, that was a bit tough. So this year, now I plan to be like, okay, I need an hour between scribes, you know, I can't. um, And also brain capacity, Mm -hmm. you know, my, my hand gets tired, my back gets tired. So I need to really be quite rigid with my health and and just to be able to give it uh, to give it justice. Because uh, the quality mm. goes down the the more tired I am, obviously.
2: And Sophie in the chat asks, um, "Do you have any pen brands that you like when you're drawing on foam board?" Um, she says, "Maybe uh, Posca is one of the ones that you might have tried."
3: Oh yeah, yeah, Posca is uh, my best friend. <laughs> Absolutely <laughs> on um, actually on black on blackboards uh, a Posca's, uh, but uh, on whiteboards um, actually you know Sharpies are great. As well for uh, for the white ones because they don't um, they don't blend they don't bleed when you sort of um, when you color it in so I would say those are kind of like my, my standards. And now I've been trying to, um, yeah, I've been buying qu- quite a few other ones to, to try it out. But it actually always depends on how, how you're mixing them. So whether the pen's sort of water-based or oil-based or mm-hmm. um, and being very careful with, with, with how, you, how you blend them. Uh, but I would say my yeah my favorites are definitely Posca's.
2: And then uh, one question that I had dangling from an earlier part of our conversation. I know that you don't want to get all of these terms and concepts into your head before you start scribing. But uh, do you take a moment to practice drawing particular spacecraft before, particularly for IAC? Um, but do, do you actually practice drawing those spacecrafts so that you have the proportions in your head before you start? Um,
3: I think I did the first time. I think I did have a look at, and actually, I did. I did some work for them before I was scribing to kind of do their logo, and so I had to dr- draw a few spaceships and stuff. But but by now, I'm kind of like familiar mm. with the, and I think I remember drawing astronauts because I was like, how how am I mm. gonna? <laughs> I'm going to a space conference. I'm, <laughs> I'm surely gonna have to draw lots of different astronauts. So and 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 things like planets and stuff. I. I I've sort of been, mm. you know, it's stuff that I like drawing anyway. So mm. I think I've drawn, I've had done a few drawings of the moon and different things, just in my in my own time, uh, not practicing for this. So I kind of had an idea of what of what they looked like. But um, no, but you're right. I mean, that that is something I don't, as I said, I don't really prepare content wise, but I do prepare imagery. So if I know that I'm going to, okay, let's say go to a I don't know a medical conference or. A, um, a construction company conference and I'll be, I be look up trucks and I, you know, I do prepare my visuals mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. beforehand actually. So mm-hmm. um, I do do that.
2: <laughs> and I expect that earns you a lot of cred to be able to draw a specific truck instead of a generic truck.
3: Oh yeah. 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 Completely. No. And, and you know, that is the kind of little detail that, that goes a long way. And actually mm-hmm. I talk, I talk about trucks because I, I did do that. There is a company Uh, that I work with that that they kind of make cement and there are like five different trucks that they use for five different types of cement and they're very specific and they all have different shapes (laughs) so I had to be very careful to be like okay which truck am I drawing for what uh, part of the company and um, because if I you know if I get those wrong then actually the content is wrong so Mm -hmm. when it's so specific like that then I do try and familiarize myself with the With the imagery. And if I don't, you know, again, if I I don't know, then I don't draw it and I just would do a generic one. But I, but if there is a specific one, then it's, I'd rather know than not.
2: Okay. And then then one final question for me. Um, How did you get to where you are? What did your education look like? This is such an unusual corner of the art world. Like, what, what got you into this?
3: Yeah. Oh, gosh. Okay, well, actually, as I said, I have a background in design and illustration. So I've always been uh, naturally attracted to drawing and different things like that. You know, I doing what I do now, I got inspired by watching someone, somebody doing it, Uh, and it was something that I kind of when I saw them I was like there's no way I'm ever going to be able to do that but that is super cool and then I was like hang on maybe I could if I start practicing and you know i actually having people that helped me along the way was super important and having people that I admired uh, that I watched them do something and then went over and said how did you do that and then they kind of pointed me out uh, you know or like start practicing, or this is some videos that you can watch, or this is some websites that you can see. Mm. Um, so that has been super. So helpful. so it was the
2: technical. It was the technical skills that was scary to you, not necessarily the idea of making the networking connections.
3: Oh yeah, absolutely. It was. I mean, it was kind of for me. What was scary is really standing in front of people and drawing. Mm. That was nerve wracking, and that that still it's probably the scariest part of of my job, you know, and I know that, you know, even though people are not really, I mean, some people are watching me, but not really, it just stage fright is is something that I don't Mm -hmm. think is ever going to go away, Mm -hmm. but it becomes really manageable because once you start drawing uh, and once you have something on the board, then, you know, you, you start concentrating and really, it really goes away. But that was a big step to actually do it in front of people because, you know, no matter how much you practice, like, Making that jump into standing in front of a of a crowd with a blank board is um is quite scary uh but actually um what i find what I found at the beginning is that a lot of people were very willing to sort of let me practice, so I think what I would say i mean if somebody's interested in in this kind of job and this very specific thing that I do um the great thing about it is that there isn't um really any formal way I mean the great and the hard thing about it you know (laughs) there isn't yet a quite a formal way to get into it it's very random and it's very by you know practicing and but also if you if you kind of go up to someone and say oh I want to try out the skill do you mind if I just sit in your lecture and draw and most people would say yes you know they love it and even if you just all you do is capture a few thought bubbles and one little portrait that goes that goes a long way, and then that gets you exposed yeah. um so what I did it, and I actually do it now still, but at the beginning, I used to just go to a lot of lectures anyway uh that i was that I was interested in, um and I always had a a notepad with me and was capturing things and at the end, I would go and and I got a lot of jobs that way, actually, just going up to the speaker mm. at the end and being like, "Oh, look, I did this." Uh, and then they would be like oh cool okay here's here's my number can you send me that and then you know that led on to something so you you never know but always um sort of don't be afraid to just to just start doing it and showing people
2: i think that, i think that's good advice mm-hmm. all right well we have two traditional final questions that we ask interviewees i'll go ahead and ask you the uh, the second to last question, the penultimate question, which is where would you like to be found on the Internet?
3: Uh, so at the moment, Instagram uh, is my um, my favorite place to post things. And I, it's at sylvia.draws. And I don't only post things about my work. It's only drawings. But I also I draw a lot when I travel. And I kind of do a sort of like a visual diary. So, yeah, you can follow my little drawings. And, and I post things about materials and my work and different things in there. So that would be the best place,
2: and then your Twitter is pretty similar it's sylvia underscore draws, I think, right,
3: oh yeah, yeah, my Twitter which I use a bit less, but I'm still there uh but if you write Sylvia dot you would also get it get oh really it on Twitter, I think so, <laughs> there is my uh... how much i <laughs> I don't really know about Twitter but. Um, yeah, but just to be safe, you can do Sylvia underscore, Sylvia underscores.
2: Yeah, if you, if you search for Sylvia dot draws, it'll come up because it's your, your name, but your username, if you put a dot in the URL, it won't work.
3: Yeah, yeah. There you go. Yeah. So it's under, oh yeah, in the URL, we underscore.
2: And uh, you've got a lot of, a lot of great photos of just it. Art examples, I guess, uh both on uh Twitter and on
0: Instagram. And the uh the, the ultimate question, if you could bring one object with you into space, what would that be?
3: <laughs> oh one object. It's probably a question I should have thought about already. <laughs> I'm surprised well, I haven't been asked <laughs> Well,
2: and sorry, sorry to spring it on you. It's kind of kind of <laughs> the fun of the question is to see what people come up with on the heat of the moment.
0: From what I've heard, it sounds like you might say your iPad. That would be an ideal one, but, you know, it could be anything.
3: No, yeah. I mean, um, because, I mean, I could, I could, you know, I could say a pencil or a pen, but actually I could find stuff to draw with. In space and that would be more fun to bring in <laughs> that's pretty cool stuff over you know I would say maybe like a plant I don't know something something oh. that's alive <laughs> is that an object no yes That's a yeah plant. no something that's know. alive I think that's a <laughs> good oh, answer that's, that's legit yeah okay okay great there you go
2: all right well thank you so much Sylvia it was so fantastic to get to talk to you again
3: no thank you this has been super fun and it made me think about things that I hadn't really thought about so thank you very much
0: Let's just move right on into this week in space light history. Apparently we just got one winner, huh? We don't, we don't even have a, all right. Yeah.
2: So, um, so the clue from this, from last week was um, no need for tears. And we, this is a really big event. So we wanted to go with something really subtle. I'll give you a little spoiler here. Tears is spelled T I R S. It's an acronym. Uh, So Jason Friesen correctly guessed the event uh, but he did not guess uh, or he d- he didn't figure out what tiers stood for. So last week we were going back and forth about whether we were going to explain that it was an acronym and spell it. And we decided, you know what, we need to make this as hard as possible because it's going to be an easy event to guess. Mm. So congratulations, Jason. All right. So this week in spaceflight history was January 25th, 2004. It was the landing of the Opportunity rover. Um, so Opportunity launched on July 7th, 2003. Uh, it successfully cruised all the way to Mars and then uh, landed uh, in uh, 2004 on, on January so the landing uh, of course happened with parachutes rockets and the big inflatable bouncy castle it's it's sort of the the beach ball uh, landing technique but what I think is really cool are the rockets that fired uh, for the the uh, the rocket assisted deceleration system um, I, I feel like everybody knows about about rad the the rockets that fired so these guys are inside the back shell and they fire up 130 meters above the surface and the idea is to come to a complete halt 15 meters above the surface and during this time the the rover is dangling from a bridle um so the back shell is has got all the rockets the rover's dangling safely below that you stop 15 meters above the surface you cut the bridle. And the rover drops to the surface. So um, RAD consisted of several different rockets. I think it was three solid rockets um, totaling 95,000 newton seconds uh, of, of impulse available. So everybody knows about the RAD. That's, that's cool. That's important. But I didn't realize that there were a bunch of extra rockets on board until I was researching this topic. So notably is a transverse impulse rocket subsystem, or TIRS. Right? Eh? We're getting there? Okay. So before we get into the full clue, let's talk about tiers. So they are three 2,000-newton-second uh, solid rocket motors that are placed uh, 120 degrees apart uh, on the edge of the back shell, and they're canted at 85 degrees. So they're they're mostly pointed sideways. Um, and they were used to allow for greater uh tolerance of of winds blowing past the vehicle as it's landing. Um, If you had too high of winds, they would push the whole vehicle off course. Um, and so what they did was they had cameras, of course, that were taking photos of the ground as they were going. And uh, every five seconds, they're comparing their location from the previous location. And if they were moving laterally enough, they could fire up one or multiple tiers rockets and slow their lateral movement. So those weren't the only supplemental rockets. There were also three steering rockets. So these were 1200 Newton second Impulse rockets. They were also distributed uh, around the circumference of the uh, of the back shell at 120 degrees. And so, what's really cool is that these were used for a very specific wind issue. So, tears would be fired up if there was enough wind to push the rover sideways. Well, if you had wind shear, which means that you have more wind at the bottom than at the top, or vice versa, because when you have the bridle extended, this is a very uh, a very tall system, right? So if you have wind shear, um, you can actually get the whole system to tilt over. And uh, their projections suggested that in about 10% of landing cases, you could have tilts. And this tilt could go all the way up to 20 degrees, which if you've ever played Kerbal Space Program, you know is a bad thing because <laughs> it starts pushing your thrust sideways. So instead of applying all your thrust vertically, now some of that thrust is getting donated into speed, giving yourself lateral acceleration. So the TIRS system was used if the whole system was getting pushed side to side, but these steering rockets were used to correct tilt. And so all they would do is push uh, to help rotate the back shell so that it was pointed vertically. Actually, you know, I'm not even sure that's true because in the papers that I was reading, they were talking about these motors allowing the net thrust to be directed downward. So I think they were just supplementing the RAD uh rockets with Mm. some off axis thrust to help uh counteract that tilt even if it wasn't actually pushing uh the tilt back over which would make sense because they're solid rockets it'd be hard to design uh for that kind of subtle control so the clue for this week was no need for tears and the reason that I picked that clue is because Opportunity didn't have to use any of uh, the tiers or the steering rockets. Opportunity had almost no wind, and it had a you know a pretty close to, uh, to nominal landing, just straight in, uh, cut the bridle, and good to go. Um, this is in contrast to Spirit. Um, one of the people who guessed uh, actually guessed um, incorrectly for another reason, but they were also referencing Spirit and not opportunity and spirit specifically did actually have to fire up um, at least one of the tears rockets. I don't know if they, if it had to use two or if it had to use the steering rockets as well, I believe it was just one of the tears rockets that it fired up. Uh, But yeah, there you go. No, no need for Uh, tears. I thought that was very clever. um, And I'm sorry that nobody got it exactly, but this had to be a hard one because if it Mm -hmm. was obvious, guessing landing the landing of opportunity would have been real easy so we had to give you guys a challenge
0: cool so yeah i think that was a good clue maybe a little bit too good but let's see what we could do for next week so what is our next clue make it easier yeah
2: yeah. so we're gonna step one year back next week in 2003 right instead of 2004
0: next week in 2003 the clue is taking a selfie and we'll just do a little spoiler there's no uh acronyms here like (laughs) 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 so that's taking a selfie s-e-l-f-i-e just like it sounds. sounds yeah so that's next week in 2003 all right if you think you know what that's about just give us a tweet with the hashtag this week sf and good luck
2: yeah good luck everybody
0: All right, let's do some upcoming spaceflight events. Just one launch and then a couple other things, but the launch is a Soyuz 2.1A with a frigate M upper stage, that's launching on the 24th, uh, and that's carrying uh, Meridian M number 19L. So that's a communications satellite for both military and civilian use, and uh, that's going to be launching at, again, on the 24th with a launch window of ten hundred UTC through 1,200, and uh, that's launching from... The Plesetsk Cosmodrome in Russia, so no surprises there. But yep, yeah, that's the one launch you got. Uh,
2: and then we have a spacewalk coming up. Um, so this is going to be on Saturday the 25th. Um, this is spacewalk number 64, and it's going to be completing repairs to the Alpha Magnetic Spectrometer. So that's Morgan and Parmitano uh, doing this walk. Again, it's on Saturday. Uh, it's scheduled to begin at 6:50 a.m. Eastern time, and the coverage begins 40 minutes before that at 5:30 a.m. Eastern time.
1: And then, uh, stepping back in time a little bit, on January 22nd, uh, NASA TV will be airing or. I guess, showing uh, basically a send-off to the Spitzer Space Telescope, whose official mission uh, will conclude at the end of the month, January 30th. So at uh, 1 p.m. on the 22nd, uh, you can tune into NASA TV to watch the universe in infrared, the legacy of the Spitzer Space Telescope, if you're interested in kind of watching that send-off that they're going to give the uh, spacecraft and the mission. And then finally, uh, on January 29th, uh, not really something you can see, but uh, if you're a Parker space, uh, or sorry, a Parker Solar Probe fan, uh, the spacecraft will be uh, hitting its fourth perihelion on uh, the 29th, and uh, this is going to be the first of these. Uh, the next ones uh, in. So this is going to be uh, going down as close as uh, 19.4 uh, billion meters. So basically, skirting the surface of the sun at that
0: point. All right.
2: Well, those are your
1: upcoming
0: spaceflight events. Cool. So, time to do over the show then. And we would like to thank Ronald Jenkins and Tim Dodd for our music.
1: We record live on Sundays at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern. Thank you so much to our $5 and up Patreon supporters for joining our recording sessions and helping us make correction burns on the fly. If you want to support the show as well, please leave us a review wherever you listen, or visit the
2: orbitalmechanics.com/support for our Patreon campaign, affiliate links, and other resources.
0: For more information on this episode, such as show notes and other links, visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com. Be sure to check out our store for vision patches, t-shirts, and hoodies.
1: You can talk about the show with other listeners on Twitter and Reddit. We're Orbital Podcast on both, and you can talk directly to us by emailing info at theorbitalmechanics.com.
0: All right, so we'll see you next time on Orbit. Until then, later. Bye, everybody. See you.